welcome to a special ECFR Minute podcast discussion on Palestinian politics. My name is Hugh Lovett and I'm a policy fellow at ECFR. Today I'm joined by Amjad Iraqi and Ines Abdelazek. Amjad Iraqi is an editor and writer at Us972 magazine. He is also a policy analyst at the think tank Al Shabaka and was previously an advocacy coordinator at the legal center Adala. He is a Palestinian citizen of Israel based in Haifa. Ines Abdelazek is the advocacy director of the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy. Ines is also a policy member at the think tank Al Shabaka and an advisory board member of the social enterprise Build Palestine. Ines previously held advisory positions with the Union for the Mediterranean in Barcelona, the UN Environment Programme in Nairobi, and the Palestinian Prime Minister's Office in Ramallah. So welcome, guys. This seems like quite a good moment to have you with us. Um, I mean, there's a lot going on uh, at the moment in the world of Palestinian politics. We just had elections in Israel. Although the results are still inconclusive, I think it's it's already fair to say that uh, Palestinian parties are emerging as potential political kingmakers with the power to anoint uh, the next Israeli government. Meanwhile, across the Green Line in the occupied Palestinian territory, Palestinians are also uh, heading towards elections. On uh, starting on the 22nd of May with elections for the Palestinian Legislative Council, the PLC, which is the Parliament of the Palestinian Authority. And if all goes well, they'll also be choosing the next president of the Palestinian Authority later this summer. So there's a there's a lot of go- lot going on, a lot of implications for, for Palestinians themselves, Palestinian political systems, but obviously border relations with Israel and, and the peace process in the region. And so I thought it'd just be great to be able to have you both with us, Amjad and Ines, to be able to kind of dissect some of these issues together. Now, perhaps before delving into the weeds of Palestinian politics, we could start with 30,000 foot question to you both by way of a scene setter. And, you know, to me, what's interesting is if you think about uh, Palestinian politics in Israel and Palestinian politics uh, in the occupied territories is clearly they've now become rather distinct uh, with their own dynamics. But of course, that wasn't always the case. And you know, I think the Palestinian Nakba in 1948 marked the effective dislocation and fragmentation of what was then the more relatively united Palestinian national leadership. Maybe united is a bit of an over-exaggeration, but more perhaps with a uh, cohesive uh, national leadership that existed uh, back then, 1948. And, and of course, uh, with the Nakba came the loss of a Palestinian homeland. And now, more than 50 years on, we have, you know, as I said, this Palestinian political leadership that has evolved in present-day Israel, and another leadership, or leaderships, plural, that have ensconced themselves uh, in the occupied territories. So I'd be very keen to get your sense from your respective positions in Jerusalem and, and Haifa. How do you see the Palestinian national movement today? And within that national movement, you know, what are the roles that the respective leaderships, Palestinian leaderships in Israel and the occupied territories currently play. Uh, maybe we could start with you, Ines, first. Yes, uh, hello you and, and thank you for uh, for having us and thank you to the SFR as well. Yes, I mean, you rightly, I think, framed it that I think the, the Palestinian polity and political body today is, is in, indeed fragmented. I think fragmentation is is the first thing we can say about it. And, and I think this is the result, as you said, of... Uh, different historical moments, and obviously the central one for Palestinians and their representation is 1948. And after that, uh, you know, the 1967 occupation, 
even more so, you know, the Oslo Accords and the creation of the Palestinian Authority ended, marked the beginning of the end of a, a united, I think, political body of the for the Palestinians and a united representation. And, you know, we're here today, I think, you have basically a whole generation that's, you know, is going, is, is asked to vote on both sides of the Green Line, people in their 30s, even who don't really know anymore the history of the PLO, right? The PLO that was created in the 60s was uh, the united kind of representative body of the Palestinians wherever they were, uh, be it uh, refugees outside Palestine, inside Palestine, and, and Palestinians wherever they are, including in both sides of the Green Line. And I think this, you know, the, the, the situation of the PLO today, I think uh, that has been uh, swallowed by the PA, reflects really the leadership and, and the institutional crisis that the, the Palestinian political system is in. And that has been obviously facilitated by Israeli policies of deliberate fragmentation and, and, and dispossession of both, you know, Palestinian, uh, obviously, uh, land, resources, uh, and rights, but but also of, of its of Palestinian's political agency. you want to come in on that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, first of all, thank you, and thank you, ECFR. Um, I totally echo everything that Ines just said, and that key word fragmentation is also very much the feeling that we have uh, as Palestinian citizens of Israel and watching here from Haifa. That fragmentation for the Palestinian community inside Israel, we sometimes call uh, 48 Palestinians or 48ers. You know, this fragmentation has also created a huge sense of a loss of direction and abandonment on the uh, on the part of the, of the community here. Um, you know, the turmoil within the core of the Palestinian national leadership, which Ines was just describing right now, and particularly the kind of demise of the PLO uh, and the distrust in the PA, it essentially means that, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel, from their political representatives to civil society organizations, to even grassroots activists, they don't know what role they are meant to play for the national movement. They know they're Palestinians, they know that they are a piece of the, you know, of this wider population, but they don't understand what their contribution is because the core leadership and the core movement is not itself uh, united and it doesn't have a very clear direction of where it's going. Um, and the result of this is that many Palestinian citizens, uh, uh, political activists to look to their leaders are essentially feeling that they're having to hold the line to protect protect Palestinians, both inside Israel and in the occupied territories, from Israeli policies, from discriminatory laws, etc. So it's a very defensive kind of posture in order to hold that line for the national movement. And unfortunately, this defensiveness oftentimes feels like it's not really going anywhere and may in fact be losing. And this is a shame because Palestinian citizens, you know, due to their presence within the Israeli political system and the legal system and having citizenship, they have a very unique vantage point to contribute to the national movement and to also sort of try reshaping the discourse and political direction of where Palestinians want to go, especially uh, in, in 48 here, we talk about discourse of equality and the idea of national self-determination between both societies. There's a lot to contribute, but as long as there's no central popular political address to guide this on behalf of all Palestinians, it's uh, unfortunately kind of stuck in the mud. And just briefly sticking with the uh, the Palestinian political scene in Israel, obviously there's a lot happening right at the moment as we speak following the last round of Israeli elections. And could you talk us through a bit what's been happening since then? But how significant is the catapulting of the Palestinian Islamist Ram Party? into the center of uh, you know, Israeli Jewish politics 
and the potential that Ram could become uh, you know, one of the kingmakers in these uh, following these elections. Like, how significant is that? And and you know, going back to what you were just telling us, you know, what does that say about the future trajectory of Palestinians? within Israel and their own priorities and, and identification. So there's still a lot of uncertainty um, as uh, 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 basically Benjamin Netanyahu has been tasked with trying to form a coalition government and there's still a lot of talks between the different parties. So if something changes in the next few days, uh, apologize for getting ahead. But as so far as Palestinian citizens are concerned, the effects of what happened in those elections is essentially a major uh, fissure and a major crippling of Palestinian political power inside Israel. Essentially what happened was that uh, the joint list, which was a, a common slate of four main Arab political parties uh, that was established in 2015, over the past few months, that list broke into two. Uh, and there were three political parties in one camp, which continue the name the joint list. And then there's the Islamist party, Ram, uh, which is led by Mansour Abbas. Now, there are many reasons, some longstanding, some more immediate for this particular breakup, but essentially the core reason was there was a difference within the list about the political strategy that Palestinian citizens should pursue in the Israeli political system. For the joint list, uh, it has a very firm principle to try to advocate for a, uh, what it calls like a center-left coalition. Now, what is defined as center-left in Israel is very different from you know, a lot of countries in Europe or in the United States. Uh, but it's the idea that there's a, there's a sort of Zionist left and center left that we can strategically ally with in order to achieve basic needs for Palestinian citizens to shift some aspects of the political discourse, to get more resources for the community, and especially to kind of to oust the Israeli political right, which has only been pursuing further and further discriminatory legislation, entrenching the occupation, etc. So that's where the joint list led by Ayman Audi tried to stand. Now, Ra'am, the Islamist party under Mansour Abbas, was basically saying that he was willing to ally with the Israeli political right. For him, he was seeing that the Israeli center-left is almost non-existent, that the Israeli right has consumed Israeli politics, that they are the majority political force in Israel. And so Ra'am is saying, if we really want to be with those in power, then we need to ally with the right. Now, there's sort of two levels that we can you know, interpret this particular split. One is what it means for the Israeli political scene, and the other is what it means for the Palestinian community itself. Now, because essentially what happened in the election was that the joint list uh, got six seats and the Ram got four seats, and that's 10 seats altogether compared to the 15 that they had in the previous election. Now, because of the splintered Israeli political scene, uh, the four seats that Ram has right now are very significant. And this is given sort of uh, what they're calling a kingmaker status because he's willing to ally with Netanyahu or anyone in order to achieve coalition. But at the same time, this, I, this status is, is a bit of a myth. The only way for uh, Ram to uh, be part of a governing coalition is for almost every single member of the Israeli uh, political right, from the center right to the far right, to accept working with Islamists. And this is essentially not the case. Uh, Smotrich, for example, the head of the religious Zionist party has effectively given his veto saying that we there's no way that we're allying with an Islamist party. So this idea of him being a kingmaker is not exactly not exactly accurate. And on the second level, what it means for the community, uh, the effect of the uh, of the Islamists kind of breaking away from the biggest political representation of Palestinian citizens is that it's basically created a major schism in, in Palestinian 48 politics. Uh, since Oslo, there's basically been a political consensus among Palestinian citizens about how to strategically engage with the Jewish-Israeli political parties, with the Zionist political spectrum. 
that was represented by the list. And this is in spite of all these political parties always trying to exclude them, always trying to discriminate them. Um, but there was an understanding of how they could play strategically. And there was a very blurred line that even Ayman Oudi, leader of the list, uh, had tried to had tried to juggle between, you know, essentially giving his recommendation for a center-right political candidate who used to be a general, but still keeping this uh, balance between uh, being part of the Israeli system and insisting on their Palestinian-ness. But Abbas, Mansour Abbas, is basically saying that we don't need that blurred line. He's broken that consensus that's existed since Oslo by saying that the right is fair game. As to how this is affecting you know, between the Palestinian-ness and arab Israeliness, this struggle has always been in the community and within the political leadership itself. Uh, Mansour Abbas is not the first one to try to promote some kind of Israeliness to how uh, uh, Palestinian citizens engage in their politics, uh, but it's really uh, crossed that blurred line that I mentioned. And it, ha and it is, I think, going to be weakening many elements of Palestinian political identity for quite a long time. And it's not that Palestinian citizens don't see themselves as Palestinians, but there's a lot of confusion for what it entails. And as long as the Palestinian movement feels frozen, and the 48ers are going to have to, they're going to feel that they have to keep turning to the Israeli political system for survival. That's fascinating. And there's a few points maybe we could pick up in a, in a few seconds. Uh, turning to you, Ines, and, um, and politics uh, in the occupied territories, could you just briefly talk us through also kind of what's been happening there? You know, Palestinians are, are heading to the, to the polls, well, hopefully. And, and so that could bring with it a number of implications. So, so how do you see this? And, and to what extent do you think that this does provide a, an opening for also reviving Palestinian leadership and, and politics under the Palestinian Authority? Yes, thank you. I think there are two dimensions there. One is, what are these elections? And, and I think the wrong assumption that these elections equate democracy. Uh, which we hear a lot, and, and that's, you know, a narrative that's been pushed also internationally. And the second is, okay, if we zoom in, what are these elections themselves, and, and what are the, the opportunities and, you know, challenges around them? On the first dimension, it's very important to really distinguish between the fact that these elections that are supposed to happen in May, although uh, now there is a very likeliness that the you know, the executive leadership, again, in the hands of the president and a few people around him uh, might postpone them. These elections are the elections of the PA. And the PA is, is, is not the PLO. The PA is the, uh, what was supposed to be a temporary, you know, autonomous authority created by the Oslo Accords. And so effectively, we're talking about elections of, you know, if we, if we could compare of like, elections within the Bantustans, for example, in South Africa of like local officials, or, you know, uh, what we would say, for example, in French, uh, you know, French colonized Algeria, uh, elections of the local Algerian representatives. So we're talking effectively of an election of a body that doesn't have sovereignty. That means that people will elect people in the sense of two and a half registered million voters uh, and that's only people who are resident and have an ID, uh, an ID from West Bank or Gaza and East Jerusalem. And they will vote for people who don't even control their lives. Uh, and so, you know, we have to, to really make that distinction. And, and secondly, the fact of the matter is that democracy is much beyond elections. And I think this is what we're missing. I think uh, clearly Palestinians are... Um, orphan of a, of a political project, of a, of a vision, of a political vision. And I think this affects, as Amjad said, both, you know, the, the Palestinians in 48, 
and the Palestinians in occupied territory and the, the refugees and the Palestinians in the diaspora in general, that there is, there is literally no answer right now or no proposition uh, to what is Palestinian self-determination and, and how should it look like. And so right now what we're offered is, is obviously some elections that are in the framing of the two-state solution and what has been proposed uh, by Oslo and effectively is actually something that many Palestinians reject themselves. Uh, but effectively, we're, we're seeing that these elections are framed um, in, in what, uh, you know, in, in, a, in an environment that's uh, a lot of players and a lot of stakeholders are imposed on the Palestinians. Uh, so the Oslo regime, the Middle East peace process, the kind of the, for, the separation, you know, even the, the, the idea of separation uh, between Palestinians in 48 and Palestinians in the West Bank, all of this fragmentation is facilitated by the existing political framework that is supported by the international community, the international donors, etc. So we're in that framing and, and we're basically organizing elections in an institutional and, and political system that has to change. And so I think that's, that's what the, the challenge is right now. And so, okay, if we see like these elections are happening and, and what, what can they mean? Because it's a bit the chicken and the egg, I think you know, we, um, a lot of people see that these elections right now can be a start. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a band-aid, but it's better than nothing. And can it be an opportunity to shake uh, the political machine? And so here we have to really look into how these elections are, are happening. Well, you know, if we look at the uh, restrictions under the electoral law and the, uh, you know, the basically the the president, Mahmoud Abbas, right now basically governing on executive orders and, and presidential decrees for the past, you know, years uh, and taking over kind of the, the judiciary independence and, and a lot of other, you know, legislations and regulations that effectively concentrate power in the hands of, of a few uh, around him. Where these elections are happening, unfortunately, be, uh, you know, a, an instrument to consolidate the existing factions because the power dynamics right now are in the hands of the large factions, Fateh and Hamas. However, there is a clear willingness and thirst of youth and, and younger people and independent people and people who really have suffered both from you know, the siege in Gaza and the, uh, the occupation, but also from a, a growingly autocratic Palestinian authority for change. There is a third for change and there is a third for new political representation. And effectively, that's the only thing on the table right now. So I think a lot of people in Palestine, in, in, you know, in the occupied territory, see this as a way to start towards something else. And I would say that, unfortunately, the, the electoral talks and the election talks are more around personalities, who's who, factions, factional uh, politics, rather than ideas and, and propositions for visions and, and, and what is it that people propose for the, you know, the Palestinians to basically get out of the occupation and kind of put a path forward to self-determination. So at the moment, obviously the large factions are, are dominating both the debates and the, the, the power space, because again, as I said, democracy was very limited in, in the past years. So uh, I think the, the question and, and I think interrogation by many observers 
about where is, you know, where is the alternative, where is the third way to, to the existing factions, uh, you know, people who would like to see an alternative. And I'm thinking, first... thinking up on that point, Ines, um, yeah. just like, so, so you talked about you know, the, the need for like a, an alternative uh, source of representation and, and you sort of flagged the risks of these elections potentially consolidating the, the hold that the current uh, established factions have. So, you know, to what extent do you see this as an opportunity or not for, for Palestinian youths, you know, for Palestinians who are, say, under the age of 30, who are a, a majority of the, the Palestinian population, the occupied territories, you know, to what extent is this an opportunity for them to be able to also to mobilize and to have their voice? And of course, you know, I think probably most of them will not have had the chance to vote in the last elections um, that were held in 2006. Yeah, I think it's more, I, I wouldn't say that this is an opportunity to actually really, um, you know, change the power dynamics and power shift. However, it's definitely, we can see this is the first time in in more than 15 years, as you said, and I would I would argue even more because even the 2006 elections the, the democratic environment was was definitely not ideal for young people. There is there is a I think the the remarkable um, there is a remarkable dynamic and people really want to take the stage and you know speak up. And I think the evidence for of that is that 36 you know legislative lists registered. That's 2,000 candidates for <laughs> what we you know what we're talking about two and a half million voters. So that's really, uh, I think, high. That also shows that many of these lists, you know, are independent lists outside the factions. And some really, most of them have like 20 candidates on them for effectively what is 132 seats in the Palestinian, the PA Legislative Council. That, that shows different things. One, that there is a clear fragmentation of the, of the political scene. There is not very clear proposition, but there is, people are fed up and people want to see change. And I would say that it's, this, is, this is even more so in Gaza. The amount of activity and, and I think eagerness we see now uh, in Gaza, and I cannot speak for Gazans, but this is really as, a, you know, as someone in the West Bank who hasn't been able to go to Gaza in 15 years, but there is this thing around, you know, there's nothing else at the moment. And these, these elections could be you know, a way of, of awakening something and change. I would say that people are rather pessimistic of the outcomes and of what these elections can bring. And I would, I would end by saying that these, the sequence of elections was, again, not chosen uh, by chance. A lot of the, the factions, including Hamas and independents, wanted PLO uh, elections first, like the PNC, the Palestine National Council, is supposed to be the parliament that represents all Palestinians. It has never really effectively been elected. But a lot of people are asking for an election to this body, which is supposed to represent Palestinians wherever they are. The choice by the president to start with the PLC also shows that they're basically, they want to renew some form of legitimacy to the status quo. Let's face it, the U.S. would like the status quo to remain. Europeans want to push for elections because this is the first sign or the first, uh, I think, symbol of, of what democracy should be about. So, so that's where we are at the moment. Thanks. And we, we, I think we have about just a bit under five minutes left. And so I kind of want to, to pull these two strands that you, Ines, and Abjad have uh, laid out so well and, and, and pulled them together. And so I'm kind of curious 
a bit about, you know, firstly, you know, what are the synergies that currently exist or that could exist between the Palestinian leaderships uh, in the occupied territories and those within Israel, and how you see that potentially evolving going uh, going forward. I mean, it's interesting that both have also evolved in different ways over the last 50 years. And so to what extent could they at some point be merged back together? And especially if in the future, for example, Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem start demanding, you know, full voting rights within Israel or, and, or pivot towards, you know, calling for equal rights within a one state. And so kind of, you know, what would that mean in terms of the potential for, for future synergy and cooperation between these two currently distinct political groups? Amjad, start with you and then we can finish with Ines. So there are a lot of... Uh... To this day, there's still a lot of political links between uh, Palestinian citizens inside Israel and the occupied territories. Everybody from, for example, the political representatives who regularly met with, for example, PLO or PA officials, to uh, Palestinian civil society organizations, human rights groups uh, that constantly cooperate and are in coalitions with groups across the Green Line, you know, political and grassroots activists on the ground uh, who go to villages, who go to different committees and youth groups. These linkages are very much there and there's a very active and vibrant community pursuing this. And, you know, we were talking about also about like the younger generation. Uh, the younger generation of Palestinian citizens of Israel are very conscious of their national identity, of their history, um, and have almost more freedom and resources to exercise that in a way that previous generations didn't have. There's a lot of basis and sort of social infrastructure to, to continue building this. That said, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of shakiness to, to whether this can happen. There's nothing inevitable about Palestinian politics being able to regather itself. And there's a, there are a lot of efforts to do so, but the pressures that are, that are against them, the fragmentation that's being imposed on them, um, the attacks that are constantly being targeted against them, it, it makes this extremely, extremely difficult. Insofar as Palestinian politics in 48 is concerned, I would argue that there was more opportunity to reforge a strong linkage on both sides of the green line when the joint list was around. The joint list, because it represented four political parties, four different kind of ideological streams in society, it could almost speak on behalf of the community and to say that th these are our positions and this is how we can contribute. Now that it's fragmented and split into two around very fundamental lines, it's very unclear how Palestinian citizens can reconnect and, and contribute positively. Now, it may be the case that because Palestinian politics has been so frozen for a decade plus that some of those connect some of those connections have sort of shifted away a little bit or the sense that again that we don't know what the collective purpose is and it may be that a side effect of these palestinian the palestinian elections happening now in the territories might actually help to reignite a sense that the palestinian movement is bringing itself back into place despite all the flaws and despite all the obstacles and all the issues that in us perfectly articulated the idea of seeing other palestinians across the green line try to have their had in voting for new leadership to shake up political discourse in a way that has been done in more than a decade, that this itself might help to kind of re-spark something within the Palestinian community here and to try to re-establish those links. Again, as long as uh, the leadership here is also still fragmented, as long as it's still debating how do you engage with the Israeli political system. And, and in fact, you know, the lesson for other Palestinians is essentially to show that even when you do engage in, in the Israeli regime in some form or another, you can still be excluded and you can still be discriminated against. And, you know, at best, you'll, you'll get less than Jewish citizens. And at worst, you're actively being crushed by the political regime. And so the question for Palestinians is, if you're going to engage in the Israeli system, what are you trying to get out of it tactically? 
But in the end, it's understand that this is not the place for them, that in the end, the community itself, the population itself needs to establish its own institutions, its own methods of representation that, like Ina said, that is, that is genuinely uh, inclusive of the, of the Palestinian diversity that exists, of their different experiences, not one that just reinforces the fragmentation that's currently being happening. And time will tell whether that will, uh, that will, eventually, uh, that will eventually occur. And I'll put the, the same question to you, Ines, but I'll also add on something that you kind of also uh, posed as a question, which is, or as a, as a current dilemma, which is at the moment, you know, there's there's a sense that there's no, no real answer to how to fulfill Palestinian self-determination. That's no real answer from um, from the current leaderships uh, in, in the occupied territories. And so, so my additional question to you would be, where do you see that potential source of an answer of future vision coming from? And to what extent could that synergy with Palestinian citizens of Israel also help promote new thinking? Yeah, I think to propose kind of a path forward in solutions, we also need to analyze the reality as it is. And the problem, I think, of both the Palestinian leadership of the PA and the Palestinians, you know, citizens of Israel playing politics in the Israel system as it is, is that they're not recognizing the reality as it is. There is the illusion of two different regimes, like there would be Israel on the one hand, and maybe with some, you know, Palestinian citizens, part of it. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the green line, there would be Palestine governed by the Palestinian Authority. The reality is not this, is that the Palestinian Authority is actually part of the reality of a, of a one system that, that governs everybody between the river and the Mediterranean Sea. So effectively under, you know, what can clearly be analyzed and described as, as apartheid, uh, you have the PA playing the role of the subcontractor of the Israelis to provide services to Palestinians in the occupied territory. This reality is entrenched. I think the less likely it will be uh, possible to ignore it. The problem is that still, the, in, again, the international community, the PA leadership, Israel, wants uh, a lot of the people want to uh, keep that status quo because uh, eventually the two-state solution is convenient, is a convenient framing. Uh, to ignore the, the very core questions that, that have never been resolved, like the Palestinian refugees' right of return, uh, Jerusalem compensation for dispossession, uh, natural resources, and all the, all the issues that basically effectively have consolidated the, the settler colonial and, and apartheid reality we're in. And so frankly, I think until uh, there will be kind of that reckoning, there is a big chance that, that the leadership will be stuck in the current framing and even within the Palestinian uh, you know, politics, there is uh, untold ambiguity and truth. Hamas effectively never really recognized the two-state solution or Israel within the 67 borders, but they did so implicitly to enter the political game. Uh, and so they also play on that ambiguity. Uh, and the Palestinian leadership, you know, the PLO effectively voted, like the PNC voted, like getting out of Oslo, and, and reconsidering even uh, the, you know, the, the whole framing, uh, but this was never applied by the current leadership. And this is because again, of all the power dynamics and pressures that come from inside and outside. So I would say that uh, the first step here is how can Palestinian representation, first from people who suffer the most from you know, occupation and apartheid, so people within, uh, I would say, occupied territory in, in Jerusalem, um, you know, have a sense of a, of a new form of, of representation, but that must be then inclusive of uh, obviously the Palestinians of 48 and, and, and the refugees and the diaspora. And, and that's a very complex matter of, again, where to start. 
Um, and so I think this is right now, I think the, the discussions that are happening. And I think, frankly, again, the, the, the current uh, political institutional dynamics as they are uh, in both sides of the green lines, if they stay as they are in playing the, the electoral game in the current, uh, in the current framing, uh, it won't change. So I think we can only hope that there can be a power, a power shift uh, if, if, you know, if these elections happen and if, you know, eventually new, uh, I think, movements and, 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 um, and representation can emerge. Thanks, Ines. And, uh, and thanks also to Amjad for what's been, I think, an extremely fascinating conversation with a lot of smart thoughts. Um, thanks again to you both for, for joining us. And thanks for everyone. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to us. And uh, I hope to uh, to be able to do this again soon with you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.